Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. It's not every day that you get the opportunity to speak to somebody who's attempted to climb Mount Everest, and even less so to somebody who's climbed it twice. However, today I'm fortunate enough to speak to someone who's done that very thing. And here to tell us about those climbing achievements is Serena Brocklebank. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories, Serena. Hello, lovely to speak with you. It's, it's great to have you on. I'm very grateful for our mutual friend, Ben Wilding, for introducing us. As am I, as am I. Obviously, we're going to talk about your interest in mountaineering, Serena, but just, just for listeners' benefit, can you tell us a little bit about your life's journey, what it was like growing up and, and what sort of made you, what, what got you into mountaineering to begin with? I had a fairly adventurous childhood, really, in in that I had fairly uh, adventurous parents who um, had uh, what I would sometimes teasingly call quite a laissez-faire style of parenting back in the 1970s, and we were just allowed to run around and pretty much do what we wanted to do. So um, so you could say borderline feral, um, but um, <laughs> as uh, uh being a member of a family with three children uh, and with lots of local friends, we just would have a great time running around the woods, camping in the garden, clambering over things and just generally, you know, getting dirty and muddy and getting into misadventures and scrapes and somehow getting out of them. And I think some of those early experiences that you can have around um, uh, risk and uh, calculating risk um, that we talk about, you know, in later life. And sometimes the problem for children today can be a little bit that they uh, can find that they're almost overly protected and find it hard to take risks. And um, and I didn't quite realise at the time that I had the kind of childhood where where I, th- I think I was learning on the hoof a lot to, to take risks. So I, th- I think I was quite a bold um girl and would probably at the time have just been called a tomboy um, but just really enjoyed um, outdoor adventures I would camp in the garden whenever I could um, and I grew up really through the scouting system too the guide and the scouting system so um, I went to brownies I went to guides I looked across at what my brother was doing in scouts and thought he seems to to be having a lot more fun than me, um, certainly more adventure than me. So as soon as I could, I joined the Venture Scouts. And really in Venture Scouts, I got into climbing and sailing and kayaking, things like that. And that led me to Outward Bound, actually. Um, I won a place on an Outward Bound course as a student um, through doing an event at Scouts where I'd uh, raised a lot of money for the RNLI by doing a sponsored row down the River Thames, raised a lot of money for the RNLI, and my so-called prize at the time was a place on an Outward Bound course. Now, even for me then, I thought, oh, Outward Bound, that sounds like boot camp. I'm not sure about that. Uh, But I went along on a three-week course. I absolutely loved it. That was in Abu Dhabi in Wales as a student. Um, And so straight after university I was supposed to be being a lawyer uh, I did a law degree uh, but straight after university I ended up going back to Outward Bound to work as a trainee instructor and that is where I met Ben and Deb Wilding 
I see. Uh, so that <laughs> you've got quite an introduction there, uh, but that uh, brought me to Outward Bound, and Outward Bound was very much uh, uh, a place that broadened your horizons in so many ways, not only just you know physically, geographically, and just really enjoying the outdoors and and uh, playing in the outdoors and appreciating it. But just meeting all kinds of people from all walks of life and hearing about their adventurous stories and being inspired by other people as well. Um, and, you know, there were some pretty bold people uh, working at Outward Bound. I remember meeting uh, a chap there who was off to climb Makalu. And um, and so it suddenly felt like something was there within the realms of possibility, really. I did an Outward Bound a long time ago, actually. Uh, mm for three weeks in Loch Eel near Fort oh, William yes, in, in Scotland. Scotland. And, That's um, the really hardcore one. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it yeah. was. I mean, you know, some of the activities were fantastic, you know, abseiling, climbing mountains or climbing, climbing very large hills. Um, and we did this thing called a solo, which is you basically went on your own for 24 hours. They left you by, by a stream with, That's I think right. it was a Snickers bar yeah. or, or, a, or a marathon, as it was called then in the 1970s. And um, I just remember just being accompanied by midges. <laughs> That's right. That, that was the only thing. But, um, yeah, so um, just for any overseas listeners perhaps who aren't familiar with Outward Bound, could you just, just sort of describe what an Outward Bound is, please? Mm. So um, Out- Outward Bound uh, started as an organisation back in the 1940s by an educator called Kurt Hahn, who um, – was trying to help young men who were preparing to go to war in, in 1914, particularly young sailors, and noticed that they um, that one thing was trying to get them physically fit enough, but one thing they noticed was that they didn't seem to be very resilient uh, in their in their characters, and so he developed these outward bound courses really as a way of trying to bring on young people. So these were 16-year-olds, really, um, who were on the cusp of adulthood, um, suddenly had major responsibilities being thrust on them by um, sending them off to war, uh, but trying to develop their character and their their, their personal skills uh, in a way that um, would encourage them to be far more adaptable in different situations. So they were encouraging them to be good team players, uh, encouraging them to show good leadership skills. Um, and they would do this by using the the outdoors uh, as a medium to that. Um, uh, now, that's obviously quite serious beginnings, serious origins, but I think it sort of developed into into a much more joyful purpose, really, too, which was about, um, you know, really being exploratory with um, with your enjoyment of the outdoors. So for certainly for a lot of children who came from inner city environments, it could be the first time they'd ever tried rock climbing or sailing or kayaking um, or just even been out in the hills or camped, um, you know, the sort of things that some people might take for granted in their childhood. Um, uh, really realising that a lot of children had never had that opportunity. So really having fun in the outdoors, yeah, but but also really learning a lot about themselves and how they cope in these different situations outside of a school setting. Yes, yeah. and, and I can, I can rec- you know, I remember when, when I went on my course a long time ago, 
there were people there from the inner cities who, who'd never really set foot in, in sort of open countryside like that with mountains. And um, it was a revelation. And, and I know what you mean about the, um, the self-confidence it can build. I mean, you know, you, you go up a, you go up, a, you know, you, you do some rock climbing. You really get a sense of achievement when, when you've gone up there. Absolutely, and and yeah. particularly abseiling when you've got to go down backwards, yeah. and the trust that you have in the rope yeah. and, and and everything. But you so do it's all you, of those things. It's yeah, the, thrill, and you, and you, the adrenaline, yeah. and the sense of achievement. But like you say, I mean, rock climbing, I think, is just such a fabulous metaphor, really, because um, you know the trust you have to place in in the person who's belaying you and and controlling the abseil. Uh, the fact that you uh, just focused on that particular activity at the time, so everything else um, it goes out of your mind. So I think there are real meditative qualities to it as well. Um, but uh, just also the delight, uh, for, for particularly for young people, of discovering, oh, I'm actually really good at something that I didn't think that I would be good at. Um, and and surprising themselves and stretching themselves and learning to take those those calculated risks like we 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 say and we often talked um, with the students in terms of it's all too easy to live your life in the comfort zone and actually you want to push out into the stretch zone because that's how you grow uh, but be careful of placing yourself in the panic zone because if you if you put yourself in that situation then you feel unsafe and then you retreat uh back back to a very small comfort zone and and then you find yourself you know not not taking taking risks at all um so uh i think i think you could really illustrate in in practical uh circumstances and by doing actual activities what we mean by that kind of theory about personal development and and personal growth which can all sound a bit buzzwordy um perhaps over a podcast or or whatever but um when you're actually doing activity and particularly shared activity with other team members uh, i think people learn all kinds of really interesting lessons yeah, we've had a couple of people on the show, um, adventurers who, who've done these sorts of things, mm. and they work. They work with people, not just sort of in in a, a forum where they're talking about it, where they actually take them out and and they you know they actually see that see the guys enjoying it and coming back absolutely enthralled by it. Um, so so on on to Everest. I mean, you know, not not just up once, up twice. But um, doing my research, I, I see that this is almost like a family tradition. It is indeed. So ha- having uh, described the background that, that I had um, in terms of having quite a sort of, you know, ad- adventurous family um, uh, and one that allowed us to be adventurous, very specifically when it came to Everest, the inspiration really was my grandfather, Tom Brocklebank. Uh, so he uh, attempted Everest back in 1933, so that was only the the fourth ever attempt on on Everest. Um, wow! So uh, it was obviously 20 years before Everest was actually successfully climbed to the summit, um, as far as we know. Uh, there was certainly a successful expedition in terms of uh, the climbers returning. It's still um, uh, uncertain whether the the summit 
was reached in 1924 by Mallory and Irvine. Um, but uh, anyway, obviously, Ed Hillary and, and Tenzing Norgay returned to tell the tale in 1953. Um so my grandfather was on the 1933 expedition. So that was the one after Mallory and Irvine in 1924. Yeah. So uh, at the time that my grandpa went, um, they still really didn't know whether Everest was A, climbable and B, survivable um, if you did manage to climb it. So I think I was very inspired from a young age at hearing about these stories and and just really realising how pioneering uh, it was, really, for my grandfather to find himself on one of those expeditions. Um, Sadly, he did die when I was quite young, so I didn't actually get to hear many of the stories directly from him. Uh, But but I did become, you know, very interested in in Everest as as a young adult, and um, I would read... Uh, quite a lot about it. I, I read about his 1933 expedition, the the official account, um, and I would hear stories from my my father and my aunt Tess, particularly about my grandfather. So, um, yeah, it, def- it definitely helps to have some direct inspiration in the family. Yeah. Um, and when was when was the moment that you said to yourself, right? It's been you know I've got this desire. I, I guess that you had a desire, and then it became. Mm. I guess you, you, you must have had a particular switch that went on and said, right, I want to do this now. When, when did yeah. that happen? Uh, so I think specifically the moment of, of thinking about it was in um, 1999. I went on an expedition um, to Everest Base Camp. Uh, uh, well, I say expedition, a trek to Everest Base Camp to, with a friend of mine, Aileen, an old university friend. Um, and it was my first time going to Nepal. And I carried the book of my grandfather's 1933 expedition with me uh, on that trip to read it uh, on the trip. I have to say, these books, um, <laughs> even if you've got a grandfather who features in them, they are a bit of a dry read. <laughs> They're quite turgid, these old um, mountaineering books. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I thought, you know, to give it my best shot and my best concentration to, to read it, uh, actually in the setting of the Himalayas would certainly bring it all to life a lot more. Um, I did also read it alongside a book called Rum Doodle. If you ever come across that, it's a hilarious read. It's a spoof um, about the early Everest expeditions. And so it is very funny to read, you know, a sincere account of what happened and then yeah. a, a spoof book as well yeah. that sort of sends up these these um, English gentlemen who go off to conquer the Himalayas, really. Um, so anyway, I just had a lovely time uh, on the Everest Base Camp trip at the time. It was it was actually quite a tough trip because um, the weather conditions were really against us. But it really excited me being out in, in that environment. And, and uh, with the background that I'd had in mountaineering beforehand through Outward Band, I mean, I say mountaineering um you know in a conditional way uh mountain expeditions really um uh in snowdonia and leading treks but then getting into climbing a lot more going to the alps and and just being up in scotland places like that just really enjoying um being in the mountains 
I did start to think, well, I wonder if I could progress to something, you know, like Everest, really. But I didn't dare have a conversation with anybody about it for a good couple of years, I don't think. I guess I guess actually going to base camp is, is uh, quite a big expedition in itself. Well, it is really. So, um, so I don't underestimate that when people tell me that they've been to base camp and they ask me if I've been and I say yes and and then you know I try not to burst their bubble by mentioning too quickly that I've actually been to the summit but it gets to a point in a conversation where it feels a bit disingenuous to not tell people that I've been to the summit as well and they and they say oh well getting to base camp must seem trivial to you to you then and and I often say no no no, it's a really big deal getting to base camp it's um, Uh, you know it's high altitude it's nearly as high as Kilimanjaro well not quite but it's 5,400 meters um, uh, at base camp not to to be underestimated then it's not to be underestimated it's not to be taken lightly and you know I think people sometimes get this impression that mountaineers are just helicoptered into base camp and and uh, you you just can't do that um, yeah. you know altitude is a real issue and uh, and also the journey certainly on the Nepal side um, it's it's 10 days of, of hiking up and down hiking to get there um, and it, it, it's quite arduous in places but but that's actually a good thing the, the, those 10 days uh, to get there because you're acclimatizing of course did um, you have guides on on that stretch? to get to base camp do you need guides uh not necessarily no, no i mean it's no. it, it's up to you some so people now uh on the whole if they're taking a holiday trip there uh will go with guides and they'll take sherpas uh with them but the first time i did it with my friend we carried everything ourselves and and went without a guide um it's quite straightforward the in terms of the route it's quite straightforward um yeah it, it, altitude is more the issue really yeah. and when altitude kicks in suddenly a uh, a fairly heavy rucksack can feel like a you know a one ton weight on your back if you're struggling. yeah so no no bottles of champagne like the gentleman in the 1920s had them. <laughs> no i my my grandpa's expedition and this is what is beautifully sent up in rum doodles they were literally uh, provisioned by Fortnum and Masons wow. in London, so uh, wow. they weren't short of champagne. And what, what's that book that you it features your your granddad? The, the book. So yeah. the book that features my grandfather is the the proper Everest nineteen thirty three account that was written by Hugh Rutledge, who yeah. was the Everest leader at the time. I see. Uh, so my grandpa features in that. But the spoof book is called Rum Doodle by, I think he was called, the author was called W.E. Bowman. And that was written in the 1950s. And he drew a lot of his inspiration from those early expeditions, including my grandpa's 1933 expedition, apparently. And it's sort of written a little bit in the style of Jerome K. Jerome, Three Men in a Boat. Okay, so probably something that keeps your spirits up when yeah. you've had a, a hard day. Oh, and it's hilariously funny. It yeah. is very, so just and, and then you got back, and but you hadn't yet decided to do the full ascent when when you got back. Oh no, not uh, no. I mean that at that time I'd only just gone to Everest Base Camp, so yeah. so uh, I 
I certainly felt inspired to do more climbing yes. um, and go back to the Himalayas and uh, do things like um, Island Peak, which is 6,000 metres, and Mira Peak, which is 6,400 metres yes. in the Himalayas. And I went off to climb Kilimanjaro, which is 6,000 metres. And then I went off to climb um, Aconcagua in South America, um, I didn't make it up the first time in in um, South America. That's on the border of Chile and Argentina, Aconcagua. And that's because the, the wind conditions were so fierce and it was so bitterly cold um, on our um, summit day that we couldn't safely push for the summit. Um, how, how does it uh, feel? How, how does it feel when you have planned for you know major trips like these and and then something happens at the end where you can't actually do what you went out to do how does it feel oh it's uh, i mean it's very testing something that that you said at the beginning actually about me climbing twice on everest i don't know if if you know this but i didn't actually get to the summit the first time around um uh, got very close to it, but not to the summit. So the my first expedition was from the north side, from yeah. the Tibetan side, and that was the route that my grandfather took. The second time, two years later, was from the Nepal side. So, um, yeah, so I, I went through all of those experiences, not just the first time around on Aconcagua, of not making it to the summit, and that's a mountain uh, that's about 7,000 metres, um, and uh, feeling, oh, gosh, if I can't make that, how am I going to make Everest, which is even nearly 2,000 more metres? Yeah. Um, but you just having to be philosophical that sometimes it's just not your day, and if the weather and the conditions aren't, aren't with you on that day or or something's gone wrong in the team or with the equipment or or with your personal health, then you just have to be very philosophical about it. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I would say one of the kind of almost growing up experiences around Everest has been and, and the journey to Everest is, is coping with disappointment. Uh, along the way yeah know. and I guess I guess that must happen to a lot of mountaineers sometimes people have said to me um they've said oh it's great that you managed to to get to the summit the second time around um after having failed the first time you you know uh it must have been really disappointing for you the first time around and I I say to them uh we have to be very careful around the word fail yeah. because um you you know People obviously feel very disappointed to not make it. But certainly my experience the first time around was it was actually a very brave decision to turn around when you are so close to the summit because survival is obviously the most important thing. Yes, of um, And it is not a failed expedition to to return to base camp alive no, you know you no. are you are coping with your disappointment obviously and yeah. that's a huge amount of time that you've set aside to go and do something it's a lot of resources it's a lot of money it's a lot of gearing up to something uh, but you live to tell the tale and you live to have the opportunity to try it again yes. um, and uh, and and I would say that a lot of people get into difficulties on Everest and still the the death 
count, sadly, to be grim about it, is a lot, lot higher than it should be still, because people find it hard to make that braver decision, you could argue, of denying their summit opportunity, when they might just be moments away from it, a few hundred metres away from it, yeah. but knowing that it would be unsafe to carry on yes. and, and yes. to actually turn back is often the braver and the bolder decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, outward bound and, and the outward bound philosophy cuts right through all of that. Uh, so I think all of those sort of early experiences uh, that I had as an outward bound student, but also try to instill in other outward bound students was very relevant around all of that too. I, I think that's a great way of looking at life, mm. isn't it? And, mm, and the challenges definitely. that we have in life is that yeah. sometimes you might be going for the goal and it'd be great to get it, but actually it's the journey to it, yeah. which um, mm. is, is really, really got mm. the true meaning. And, yeah. and, you, and to try know, and to not give up, yes. either, you know, to cope with that disappointment. And yeah. um, uh, I have been fortunate enough to meet Bear Grylls on a few occasions. And uh, he just I just think he has lovely messages for people. And he gave it to me personally as well. Just, you know, just don't don't give up, you know, no, just no. Keep, keep going. Don't give up. Yeah. Um, and by that, he doesn't mean. Um, you know, you have to make the summit on the first attempt, no. but but don't give up in in terms of your spirit. If you are beaten back, um, yeah. keep going at it, and you will meet obstacles on the way. And yeah. he gave me lots of lovely warning around the kind of ob- obstacles that I would face, less to do with the mountain, but more around just being part of a very intense expedition. And he said, you will get, you know, beaten back in all kinds of ways, psychologically, emotionally, and in your spirit, uh, not just physically, but just try and have the faith and keep going. Yeah. You know. S- Serena, I'd like to talk about the sort of practical aspects of that yeah. of when you first went to Everest yeah. or, or when you first prepared for it. Um, Going back to the point where you decided to do Everest, um, I'd like you to tell me when that was and also what the preparation is like, how, how you set about yeah. the funding, the fitness training, you know, and, and the uh, getting everything together, the equipment and stuff. How, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Sure. Um, so having uh, gone gone to the Himalayas and, and done the Everest Base Camp Trek and then just slowly building up uh, my my high altitude experience. I was really just checking in with myself. How did I cope at altitude um, before I, you know, decided to commit to Everest? Because, because you can get people who are, you know, very experienced climbers, very technically good climbers, very fit people. Uh, I'm not claiming to, <laughs> to be a super fit athlete, um, but you can get people who, have, who are very experienced, but then just unfortunately find that they don't do very well at altitude. So I didn't want to put myself in a situation where, um, you, you know, I was going to definitely plan to go ahead to Everest if that was going to be a problem. So Aconcagua uh, really was a test of that. So I uh, attempted Aconcagua in 2003. I'd already made preliminary um, inquiries with an expedition company that was based in the Lake District. And I knew of them through Outward Bound links as well. So they they kind of approved of my background, really, um, that I'd done a lot of um, 
you know, that I was technically in a good position uh, with all my work throughout Rebound and all the other expeditions that I'd done. And they said, the main thing for you uh, will be testing yourself at altitude. So just, you know, build up a bit more of a portfolio at higher altitude, which I did. I climbed with them on Aconcagua and they said, uh, that they thought I actually did very well at altitude and it was just the windy conditions at the time that beat us back. So so they gave me the confidence to feel that I could um, go and attempt Everest um, the following year. So so 2004 was my, my first attempt on Everest and I attempted it from the Tibetan side, like I mentioned before, because that was the route that my grandfather tried. And so really in between... Aconcagua in I think that was around October November 2003 to to April of 2004 that's six months a lot of I mean I just lived and ate and breathed Everest in terms of the preparation at that (laughs) point um and it's an expensive business um there's no doubt about it but I just called on um all my resources and friends and colleagues you know um not only people I'd known from Outward Bound, but um, there was a great colleague uh, from Rally International. I worked at Rally International for a couple of years, a chap called S- Stephen Jones, who was an expedition leader there. And um, he also worked in the Antarctic uh, for quite a few seasons. So he was really good uh, at knowing everything there was to know about um, the right kind of equipment for extreme cold basically so um he came around to my flat a couple of times and we just spread all the equipment I had on the floor and he he told me you know what I needed to get and where I could try and get it from a bit more cheaply but um the sort of things that I shouldn't scrimp on and and I remember him saying your extremities are the bits you should not scrimp on in terms of quality so really really good quality gloves really really good quality boots and when I say gloves there are about four or five different types of gloves you have to have obviously you know the good thermal uh, layers and then um, uh, medium wind stopper gloves and then uh, really serious high altitude mountaineering mitts on top of that you have to have think about having spares because things can get dropped down crevasses really easily same same with the boots and uh, um, you've obviously got to have seriously good hiking boots and then ice climbing boots for the middle section and then really top um uh, high altitude well they look like moon boots but they're actually very technical high altitude boots and those were my most expensive bit of equipment at the time they were 500 pounds and this was back, back in, in 2004 2004 yeah, yeah. Wow. and um and uh i also i have quite small feet and so i couldn't borrow off anybody else because <laughs> you know also i didn't know of any other women who had attempted um, Everest or done this sort of high altitude stuff so yeah. I, I was mainly mainly relying on the help of um, you know male colleagues and friends and obviously none of them had size five shoes um, so so I did have to to buy that um, yeah. I remember renting a down suit 
um, that my mother thought was hilarious when I tried it on for the first time because she thought I looked like a Teletubby, um, <laughs> one of these big down suits. And I really did because, again, it was designed for men, so it was very long in the body. Yes. So, you, you know, it was a bit saggy around by my knee area. But obviously it looked far more professional once I'd actually got a harness on and uh, yeah. a rucksack on. Um, but it did look very funny. Um, but I rented that the first time around. The second time around, because I um, – had been living in Nepal for the second expedition. I actually had a lot of contacts out in Nepal then, and I had a made-to-measure down suit uh, done in Nepal um, at a fraction of the price um, that it w- it would have been to get it done in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, tell us about the, the the beginning of the trek. Obviously, you have to go up to base camp first. Yeah. So the the uh, attempt in two thousand and four. Um, like I, I mentioned, I wanted to follow my grandfather's route. They could only climb from the Tibet side back in 1933 because Nepal was actually completely closed to foreigners then. Yes. So um, they could only approach from that side. And I'll just tell you very briefly their journey because it sounds so romantic, really, and a proper <laughs> journey. They they sailed from Southampton round to Calcutta. They then took the train from Calcutta up to Darjeeling. They walked from Darjeeling for six weeks to what became base camp on the Tibetan side. I, however, got driven <laughs> in a Land Rover uh, round to um, uh, base camp. Yeah. And uh, that's 5,200 metres on the Tibetan side. So you may remember I said earlier that actually the Nepal side, you walk in for 10 days to get to base camp, which is actually a much better acclimatisation programme. Yeah. On the yeah. south side, you're being driven across the vast Tibetan plateau to get to base camp. So you have to stop quite a bit on the way. But people often feel pretty unwell when they get to base camp. I was going to say 5,000 5, 5, metres. 5,200 yeah. metres, yeah. 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 Um, so I had already done a little bit of acclimatising um, in in uh, Nepal on that side. Oh, actually, a little interesting segue I should tell you is that I arrived at base camp on the Tibetan side uh, a week later than all of my um, colleagues, uh, which might sound a little bit remiss of me, uh, We, were, but we were all in Kathmandu together and um, uh, the local Nepal agency was sorting out our visas, the visas with the Chinese uh, for us to go to Tibet. And we had a BBC team with us uh, at the time, and they were a little bit nervous that the, the Chinese might not be uh, very happy about a BBC team uh, going in because it can be all a bit sensitive about Tibet. Um, and we were told the night before we were all due to leave that um, everybody's visa had been approved, including the BBC team. The only people, the only person that wasn't approved was yours truly, Serena Brocklebank. Oh, dear. And that was because I worked for the Foreign Office at the oh, time. And yeah. the Chinese government were um, uh, a little uncertain as to what my motivations were for going into Tibet. So, um I had to do a week of very intense diplomacy uh, with the with the consul uh, in Kathmandu at the time, 
Um, which, to, I, which I guess you must have been good at because you were a diplomat anyway. Wasn't you? <laughs> yes, but even this <laughs> took me by surprise. And I was yeah. saying, no, 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 I, I, I really just want to be a very selfish mountaineer <laughs> and, yeah. and just go and climb the mountain. Uh, there is no ulterior motive. Um, so uh, John Chick was the name of the consul at the time at the British Embassy. He was very helpful in, in um, getting his Chinese colleagues uh, at the Chinese Embassy in Kathmandu and do to to uh, give me a visa to go but it meant that I was a week behind everybody else which um, was actually an extremely stressful start to the expedition yes um, I can imagine because, yeah because they'd already had their few days settled in base camp to acclimatize they'd already set off up the mountain and it was quite some some time before I catch them up because I was you know, out of sync with them, but I couldn't. I couldn't rush to go up. No. Um, so I did have um, uh, a little bit of company, but you know, it was quite a lonely experience to yes, start with. So I had to remember that tomboy child um, who was good about being on her own and and uh, and being quite bold because uh, the first. The, yeah, the first few days on Everest, I was literally hiking on my own um, up to to advanced base camp. Yeah, well, with, with your equipment or with a Sherpa? Um, uh, well, on my own, actually, but uh, oh. um, but the equipment, uh, uh, the the serious equipment, gets moved up by the Sherpas anyway. Yes. yes. Uh, but so so the tents and things like that. But I was carrying my stuff. Uh, on the acclimatization roads. what type of weight would you would you typically carry then as, as you go yeah. up the mountain uh, sort of well weight? we would be as light as possible uh but um you know around 15 kg something like mm. that no, um, not too bad but but still enough to be, bad, hold yeah. you back a bit um yeah. you know if if you're pushing up to 20 kg you would really feel it um um yeah but you would obviously have to carry um you know your clothing, your emergency supplies, um, uh, uh, your um, sleeping bag, a mat, um, some emergency food, and water is always the heaviest thing. Yes. Um, you know because you've got to have plenty of water. Uh, that's all part of the acclimatization process as well, keeping your circulation yeah. uh, going well. And you can only do that if you're properly hydrated. So you met your team. Met my team, um, um, yeah. and only really got into sync with them. Uh, by about the you know week six of a of a um, ten week expedition, yeah, um, um, yeah something like that. Um, so no, it's perhaps a little bit before then, but any anyway, um, I did link up with them eventually. Um, and the thing about climbing on Everest is, um, people sometimes wonder why does it take a couple of months to climb Everest. If altitude wasn't an issue, it would perhaps take you one week to climb it, you know, five days up, two days down. Yeah. Um, uh, but altitude is an issue. If you try to do it five days up, well, you you know, you wouldn't get very far at all before you slipped into a coma and slipped away. Yeah. Um, so your body has to slowly acclimatise. And so you end up having to travel up and down the mountain several times to bank that acclimatisation. So you'll... You'll go from base camp up to advanced base camp, and then come back down again, and then, 
and then up to advanced base camp again and up to camp one and then you'll come back down to advanced base camp and then up to camp two and then all the way back down to advanced base camp and then maybe all the way back down to base camp again you know you're oh, really going up and down the mountain and wow. and they reckon by the time you cl- climb to the summit in terms of distance covered you yeah. you've climbed everest you know four or five or six times by that yeah how, how many hours a day would you be doing that yeah, well, th- well, that's the thing you see because you, uh, when you're first, say, when you're at ad- advanced base camp and you're going up to the North Coal, yeah, uh, the North Coal is at seven thousand meters, and advanced base camp is was six thousand four hundred meters, so it's only six hundred meters up. I say only six hundred meters up, but um, you know, the very first time you do that, it could take you nine or ten hours because you've got to do it so slowly um because you're you know touching new heights all the time but by the time you've done it for on the you know third occasion uh you might be able to get up there in a couple of hours Um, and do you do you feel your breathing and your oxygen intake and the whole process and your body gradually acclimatizing absolutely absolutely you do so when but when you go down to base camp having done some of these higher altitude rounds you almost feel a bit giddy and drunk on the oxygen levels down there um Mm. and you think hang on a minute a few weeks back i was struggling to breathe at base camp Um, and so that's just how much your body is changing but it takes time and that yeah you know in brief the science behind that is your your red blood cells are having to multiply to take on board more oxygen um to compensate for the fact that in the atmosphere there is less oxygen and more carbon dioxide which is um you, you know obviously a more toxic combination um so your body is having to to adapt to the lower oxygen levels by mm. your red blood cells having the ability to take on board more oxygen in your body so this this sounds like a naive question um but do you take oxygen up with you um not naive at all um so so uh you're just naturally acclimatizing um until about 8000 meters that's that's the whole idea. Yeah. There's nothing to stop people climbing from base camp uh, with oxygen. Some people have done. Yeah. It's generally a bit disapproved of because it's seen as you're not really playing the game um, yeah. uh, because you're not allowing your body to sort of naturally adapt to the environment. Uh, but there's no rules about it. You know, if you wanted to do that. You'd have to be a multimillionaire to do it because it would cost you so much money. I mean, each oxygen bottle was priced at, I think it was about £1,500 for each bottle um, at at the time. And that is not just the bottle in itself and the cost of the bottle and the cost of the oxygen, but it's the the shipping costs. So the shipping costs to get all those oxygen bottles shipped to base camp in the first place. Yeah. And then the transport costs, because this is where the Sherpas, and, you know, it's so important to talk about the Sherpas, um, they do so much backup support. Um, you do get some extraordinary mountaineers. They are the exception, people like Reinhold Messner, um, who have climbed Everest uh, with no oxygen whatsoever and uh, no Sherpa support. 
Um, but they really, really are the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Uh, most mountaineers, and certainly ones who, you know, signed up to um, a commercial expedition, because that is what they are. They, you are signing up to a company that's providing you with the logistics. Um, they are providing Sherpa support, equipment support and oxygen support. And you're just trying to get the balance right of how much of that you can a afford to use and feels ethical to use really. Um, So I would say the average is people don't really get onto oxygen until they get to get to um, about 8,000 meters, maybe a bit below uh, south side of Everest, which is the Nepal side of uh, Everest. Uh, we did start to use oxygen at 7,300 metres there at the camp bed. But that's also partly because it's such a strenuous climb from 7,300 metres to the top camp. At what point did you do the final ascent, Serena? So um, talking about that first expedition, the the, the final push to the summit uh, was about... Um, you know, nearly two months into the expedition. And I was personally feeling really good and really strong and really healthy. Um, Well, I say really healthy. It is all relative. Um, uh, We we had a a very strong um, mountain biker with us um, on this expedition who was being filmed by the BBC. And he, he had left the expedition uh, a couple of weeks before because he said I just don't feel fit enough I don't oh, really? feel like I'm firing on all four cylinders and I yeah. remember saying to him um, uh, he said he felt he was only firing on three cylinders and I said three cylinders that's really good in mountaineering <laughs> you know you're, you're lucky if you're you know yeah. you're averaging between two and three cylinders yeah. so there I was on my two cylinders uh, at the top camp um you know, this is metaphorically not oxygen cylinders. No, I realise um, that. Uh, um, and uh, feeling good for the summit, but unfortunately, the weather gods were not with us, oh. and a seriously bad storm came in, and yeah. we were stuck on in the top camp. Um, those of us who were pushing for the summit for three days, oh, right. and yeah. so. Uh, we literally could not step outside the tent. It was a total snowstorm blizzard, uh, very, very heavy winds. Uh, We had to uh, make sure we weren't being buried alive by the snow drifts. Um, uh, So, um, you know, every now and then we would have to just clear the entrance to the tent um, and just stay put and try and sit out the storm. Um, As time ticked on, we knew that even if the storm dropped, that we didn't at that point then have enough supplies to carry on because our oxygen supplies were dwindling, just staying put at 8,000 metres. Our food supplies were dwindling and your body is effectively wasting away. You're in the um, charmingly called death zone. Um, anything above 7,500 metres is considered to be the death zone. And and uh, the general thinking is you shouldn't be above that height for more than seven days uh, and we were already on, you know, by the end of that storm, we were on day six. So we we could not risk going up to the summit when the the the, the storm eventually cleared. We couldn't do that final push to the summit. We had to use that final day for safety and for, for survival and to yeah, drop yeah. down. Yeah. So um, you had to take that that brave decision. Yeah. yeah. That brave decision, in a way, 
it had got so extreme that I think it was a bit of a no-brainer, personally. Mm. However, um, your brain is doing funny things at high altitude anyway. It's starved of oxygen. You um, desperately want to go to the summit. Um, um, you know, uh, your toy uh, is uh, is the summit and you want your toy um, and, and uh, people do throw their toys out of the pram a little bit if they can't have their have their 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 summit their achievement and unfortunately during that period 11 people died who made the wrong decision and and carried on trying to go to the summit so it is so difficult uh to make that decision and these these were people possibly that you'd met beforehand yeah yeah on different expeditions um uh just trying to push through to the summit uh, and then just getting into trouble, either hypothermia, exposure, you know, wind, um, you know, being blown off the ridge uh, on the way to the summit. It was just dreadful. Um, mm. And the communications, obviously, were really poor because because um, uh, of the storm. So people's radio systems weren't working properly. So, so, you know, terrible things might be happening even not that far away from where you are. But you're not even aware of it. And how far um, away from how, how far away from the summit were you where, when um, you had to make that decision? So, so we were uh, at at this point we were about seven hundred meters away from the summit. Not yeah. far at all. Yeah, yeah. Mm. In terms of height, um, yeah, yeah, that that is. So, yeah. uh, still, you know, a good push, uh, still a day's climb. Um, a good day's climb ahead of us, but we had to use that day to go down. And yeah, and like I say, that's sometimes the harder decision uh, and the bolder thing to do. And then we got back down to to base camp and only really the enormity of the tragedy that was going on for other teams um, unfolded at that point. And I think the rest of us felt, oh, we're so lucky to be alive. Um, Glad to be off Everest, never, ever, ever again. Um, but by the time we'd got back to Kathmandu, um, a few of us were already thinking, ooh, Everest on the south side from the Nepal side, how about it? And um, I've never had children, but maybe it equates a little bit to childbirth when you hear mothers talk about the pain of childbirth and go, never, ever, ever again. <laughs> and then suddenly, two years later, they find themselves having So you'd made that decision when you came back down again? Well, well, about a week later, um, when we were back in Kathmandu, there was a a little group of us, four of us, uh, one who had links with an expedition leader on the south side, um, who said, oh, should we think about it? And and it took a couple of years, obviously, to, to A, amass the funds again to go on something like that and to gear up to it. And I, I do sometimes rather flippantly say, but it is a convenient way of describing it, um, having tried to uh, climb Everest from my grandfather's side, and I did get higher up the mountain than my grandfather, uh, but it was lovely to obviously follow in his exact footsteps up his side. Um, uh, well, uh, you know, that was wonderful to try that, but that Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, um, they were on to something, climbing from the south side, from the Nepal side, and I just figured... If I was mad enough to try it again, you know, at least have a different experience. So just just be, just before we talk about yeah. your trip up up where you actually got to the summit, yeah. a couple of years later, um, 
I'm, I'm intrigued into the decision-making process of deciding that you're going to come down again. You mentioned you had a team leader. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it very much the team leader who says, look, I, we really ought to do this? Or is it, is it almost democratic? Do, do you all have yeah. a chat about it? How does it well, work? The, the team leader was uh, down at base camp. He was, uh, he, he'd um, become ill. Um, he'd had a chest infection going up to the North Cole, so he couldn't carry on. Uh, so he'd gone back down to he was an advanced base camp, I think. So again, it's what it, it's one of these situations where um, you have to be, um, you know, very independent yourself about the decision. Uh, you're obviously making it with the Sherpas. Uh, there can be a difficult thing. I'll be honest too that the Sherpas are sometimes in a tricky position. There's a bit of the they. Um, they really want to get their what they would consider to be their mountaineering clients up to the summit because that's good for the, their CV. Um, they, um, you know, want to get a bonus for getting you uh, up to the summit. I made it very clear to my Sherpa he was getting a bonus either way. <laughs> um, you know, it should not be linked uh, to getting up to the summit. It should be about the safe decisions that are going on. So uh, it really was um, about us as a group of teammates making making the decisions of the few of us who were left in the team attempting up to the summit because it was only about half of us at that point. And it wasn't straightforward. There, there were a couple of people who still wanted to head up. Um, but then I think that, you know, it just became an obvious decision that yes. they wouldn't have had enough oxygen no. alone to get up to the summit if they did. Yeah, and I, and I guess I guess when they came down again, yeah. they'd heard what had happened. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. Very thankful. So yeah. um, we're going to skip forward now, if you don't mind, to yeah. your trip i was going to say successful trip but actually they're both they're both successful as you mentioned earlier in different ways yeah Yeah, exactly um but should we say should we put it more like when you actually sail that when you you (laughs) enter the summer Um, so can we go to the bit where you do the final ascent if that's okay yes unless there's anything else that we ought to a bit of background too in that um yeah uh so um, I had rather cleverly manoeuvred a position, I like to think, um, at the British Embassy in Kathmandu um, uh, in the run-up to the second expedition. So in 2005, um, I went to work as the vice consul at the British Embassy in Kathmandu. That job was actually lined up before my first attempt uh, um, yeah. uh, on the Tibetan side. But um, considering I was then aiming to climb in spring of 2006 on the Nepal side, it was extremely advantageous, me actually being in situ in Nepal for 15 months in the run-up to that. So um, any holiday time that I had, I was up there in the Himalayas, I was trekking and um, uh, and climbing. So that was great. Yes. So um, then I set off and it was lovely to have the support of the British Embassy behind me too. Um, you know, they were very excited for me too. Um, uh, um, it was an easier start because of the uh, acclimatisation that I was telling you about, the natural acclimatising that you get on the way to base camp. However, I had had a horrendous chest infection just before going. So again, it looked slightly wobbly at the beginning of uh, my Everest climb, whether I was going to be physically fit and healthy enough to start with. And um, in a nutshell, 
at the beginning of the expedition, the leader of that expedition, um, there were there were quite a few people who dropped out early on for, for health reasons. Yes. And he did have a bit of a question mark over me because he 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 thought that maybe I wasn't going to be yeah, physically fit enough because of my chest infection to do it. I managed to persuade him to let me hang on in there as long as I promised to be really sensible and, you know, not go too high too early on in the expedition. Yeah. Uh, and that worked in my favour. But it was really tricky. And, you know, the words of Bear Grylls, of, um, you will have some obstacles and you will get some people objecting uh, about you. And I don't mind saying, too, I was the only female on both expeditions each time. Oh, really? And, you know, that comes with a certain amount of baggage um, be, because uh, they're, they're not always the most enlightened of, of environments. Can I put it like that? Yeah. <laughs> These base camps. And I think there can be a bit of an assumption, oh, the female in the group will, you know, be the burden and need to be supported and carried Oh, really? Out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, I had to do quite a lot of convincing people, but doing it in a gentle, low-key way that I was I, I was all right. Yeah. Uh, but there were times that that was a bit of a lonely experience. Um, but uh, anyway, it came right in the end. It was a tricky yes. beginning um, in, in terms of that chest infection, but I got stronger and stronger and I started to acclimatize well. And my lovely Sherpa, um, a chap called Pasang Nuru Sherpa. Uh, so he is a Sherpa by profession, but his family name is also Sherpa. He was great. And he um, uh, spoke very little English. I had fairly rudimentary Nepali, but we got on really well together. And he was the one who gave me quiet confidence each day when we climbed. Was he? Um, he only joined me, you know, about two-thirds of the way through the expedition you climb on your own to stop and he would just say to me you know he would call me diddy which means sister he would yes. say you climb really well today diddy and it would mean the world to me you know um <laughs> yeah. that i had the approval of my 23 year old sherpa i was 38 at the time but um yeah. uh you know if he was confident in me that's what mattered because because his life is at stake as well, of uh, course. going up to the summit, yeah, yeah, yeah. very much so that if he has a climber who doesn't know what she's doing and isn't ready to climb and can't make the right decisions and hasn't prepared properly and hasn't looked after herself properly, then I'm putting him in danger. So anyway, our climbing partnership worked well. Uh, we went, uh, I'll zoom you forward um, seven weeks really to the point where we're at the top camp and we are heading up to the summit yep. and we get to the top camp at about four in the afternoon and we're going to be heading off at nine o'clock that night uh, because climbing Everest, um, uh, the, the summit day uh, can, you know, be a very, very long day effectively. Um, and what time, what time of year was this? Serena? So this is, uh, it was 18th of May. Uh, so it's normally mid-May to late May that is the very, very narrow window of opportunity for people to climb to the summit. So when you see these images, particularly in the British press, of oh, all those people crowding on Everest, um, uh, that might be because there has just been one day in the whole year when it's been okay to climb to the summit in terms oh, really? of the winds uh, uh, being... Um, 
at a lower so I, level. So I didn't realise that. Yeah. I, I'm sure most yeah. of, a lot of listeners wouldn't. What you're saying is that sometimes there can only be one, maybe two days a year yeah. that you can actually, you've got that yeah. window to do it. And it normally falls between middle of May and end of May. Right. And what it what it's all about is Everest, most of the year is totally unclimbable because the summit is sticking in the jet stream. And so the the winds on the summit are 200 miles an hour. So when people see images of Everest, you often see what looks like a cloud sort of streaming away from the summit. That isn't a cloud. It's snow being blasted off the summit. And often why, again, an image of Everest it, it, it's just rock and people wonder why, oh, oh why is that, is, isn't it a nice snowy glacier? And that's because snow never gets a chance to settle on it. When it snows on it, it's just blasted off straight away. So, um, yeah, Everest is unclimbable for most of the year and it drops to a friendly 40 to 50 miles an hour um, in May time. Um, yeah, so the, the day that I was setting off to the summit... Uh, so it's the night of um, uh, of the 17th of May at nine o'clock at night. And the general thinking is climb up during the night uh, when you've got the most energy. You've rested for a bit. We haven't slept, obviously. You've just been resting nervously at the top camp. You're trying to hydrate. So you're melting snow, trying to um, hydrate. You're trying to eat, but you feel like you've got no appetite. Appetite, the altitude really kills your appetite. I love chocolate and I couldn't even face chocolate up there. That's how extreme it is. Mm. Um, and you set off during the night and uh, it's a very, very slow plod. And it's very, and uh, in places it's quite technical. There's a place called the Yellow Band, there's a place called the Hillary Step where it suddenly gets really quite steep. And so it's technical ice climbing, uh, sometimes on bare rock. So you've, you're wearing these crampons. But, um, you know, sometimes your crampons are then on bare rock. And so it can be tricky. And you're all tethered together, are you? No, no, no. You're just you're you're climbing uh, alone, uh, but with your Sherpa behind you. But there is fixed rope uh, for most of the way up. So so a, a Sherpa team will have gone ahead at the start of that season. Um, so it had only happened two days before I climbed up, um, uh, when the weather had been good enough again, the winds had been uh, low enough for a team to fix ropes up to the summit. Um, uh, And that's, you know, incredible Sherpas. And actually my Sherpa had been part of that rope fixing team. He hadn't gone all the way to the summit because um, he was planning to accompany me a couple of days later. So, you know, he obviously didn't want to, waste all his personal resources by doing that just just for listeners benefit i mean Mm. it's we've all got pictures in our mind's eye as as to what that final ascent is like Mm. you know how near the edge of of the mountain are you in in other words you know Mm. how 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 dangerous is it you can actually fall off question well um in a way uh the night time can comfort you (laughs) because you cannot see what you cannot see um Mm. (laughs) so uh when when you're first climbing it's quite a broad but steep snow slope so you don't feel like you're going to fall off sideways, put it like that. No. But then you get to a place called the balcony, which is at 8,500 metres. And then you are very much climbing on a ridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously we've got head torches on, but you're climbing by um, moonlight as well. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and then when I got to the Hillary step, my uh, my head torch actually failed me at that point. You know, the, it was so cold that the batteries obviously run down really quickly. I had spared batteries, um, obviously, in my backpack, but I made the decision that I didn't want to get those batteries out because I was on such a narrow part of the ridge at that point um, and also risk, you know, freezing my fingers against metal batteries trying to install them. So I just climbed up by moonlight uh, up the Hillary step. And um, when I got to the Hillary step and I got to the summit, I'll tell you a bit about that in a minute. But when I returned, uh, which was in daylight and came down the Hillary step, I thought, wow, I, it's just as well. I almost couldn't see what was going on on the other side there because right. it was literally a 10,000 foot drop um, down the Kanchung yeah. face, just yeah. inches away from where I was climbing by moonlight um, climbing up the Hillary steps. So it's certainly not for the faint-hearted. It's it? not for the faint-hearted. So <laughs> at that point, ignorance was bliss a yes, little bit. I mean, obviously, yeah. I knew um, yeah. what was going on, but I couldn't. I couldn't really see, so I didn't have that yeah. terrible sense of exposure. Only really, Bob. Once I got over the Hillary step, did I think I'm going to make it to the summit. At no point before then did it feel like a guaranteed thing. And how how far you know how far is the Hillary step from the summit? Uh, in in terms of meters of height, it's uh, probably only a couple of hundred meters at that point in height. And now for the pinnacle of our conversation, yes. Serena, <laughs> um, the peak of our conversation. Um, can you just describe what it was like on that final ascent? Yes. Please. So what was wonderful was having climbed the Hillary step in the dark just by moonlight and getting to the top. And and then it was a much more gentle slope to the summit. Um, I not only realized I was going to make it to the summit physically and technically, but in terms of time, time really being on my side, because we'd set off at nine o'clock at night and the whole idea is that the turnaround time um, at the summit uh, was uh, one o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I was about to make it to the summit before five o'clock in the morning. So eight hours before the safety turnaround time. So it was so pleasing to know that I'd been climbing so steadily and so comfortably that I was going to make it in good time. And can you imagine how pleasing it was to have my Sherpa tap me on the shoulder? It was actually quite um, hard to communicate because you've got oxygen masks on, you know, it's it's very hard to communicate yes. through all your equipment, your goggles are frozen up. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he basically indicated to me that we needed to slow down because he said, we're going to get to the summit too early and we're going to be there in the dark and you won't be able to see anything. So this was brilliant news. So, yeah. Yeah. so it was so nice to, you know, take our time and slow down and literally get to the summit as dawn was rising. And at this point, there was only um, one pair of climbers um, uh, ahead of us. They'd, uh, we didn't realise that we'd actually got to the front of all of the climbers because we'd climbed slowly and steadily. And then uh, this climber overtook us when I'd been uh, fiddling about with my head torch. Um, and, uh, yeah, so a German climber who I shook hands with. I have um, 
no recollection of who he was, didn't really see his face, but shook hands with him and he was on his way back down. And then uh, Pasang Nuru and I got to enjoy the summit for three quarters of an hour. Oh, wow. All on our own. Just just describe yeah. that that last 10 metres where you, you could actually see, what is it? Is there's a flag at the top or something, is that? There, there were a few prayer flags on the yeah. top um, yeah. that uh, had been placed there by a Sherpa probably a couple of days before because on the whole, nothing survives on the top for very long. Um, you know, it gets whisked away. Um, so so lovely to be able to see these multicolored uh, prayer flags in the distance. So to know that that's where the summit was, because the summit's actually a little bit rounded at the top, um, but it's only the size of um, you know the true summit is the size of a kind of a bench that two people could sit on. Um, so uh, uh, you, you know it is quite a narrow summit, but it's not a pointy summit. So so lovely to see that in the dawn uh, that was coming through to get there. And to to then slowly see dawn, and in terms of the description of the emotion, ecstatic, yeah, euphoric, like um, like uh, just really the the most ecstatic feeling I'd ever had in my life, and it was really really lovely to feel those emotions because some people say that you can actually feel um, quite uh, numb uh, at the summit because. If it's been so exhausting to get up there and terrifying, if you know that your margin is very, very narrow and that really you should be turning around or arguably should have turned around already. Some people have the experience of just, you know, touching the summit, bagging the summit and yeah. saying, right, that's it. We've got to go down now and not really even able to enjoy it. So, yeah. Yeah. We were up there on our own for 45 minutes. Oh, what an experience. And it must have been great seeing seeing the sun come up. Seeing the sun come up and seeing, seeing the shadow of Everest as well, because you can imagine the shadow of Everest being <laughs> the biggest shadow in the world, yeah. um, stretching out for miles in front of you because the sun's coming up behind you. Um, seeing literally the curve of the earth, you can see it with your naked eye from up wow. there. Um, seeing, uh, you know, th- well, throughout the night, but seeing it at dawn as well, you're seeing all these electric storms that are happening all around you. And so when you're climbing up, you that can be very nerve wracking. You think, oh, my God, is there a, an electric storm near me? But because you're so high up, you're possibly sick witnessing an electric storm that might be happening in the Karakorums in Pakistan. You know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, It's that far away from you. Yeah. Uh, but also what you're seeing beneath you is a sea of cloud beneath you. So my colleagues who were down at base camp, um, because half the mountain um, expedition team uh, were going up in the second wave. So they were all down at 5,400 metres at base camp. They thought we were having a hideous time because it was snowing heavily at base camp. But that's because the cloud line and the snow line was hovering around 6,000 to 6,500 metres. Yeah. Um, so they were under heavy snow, whereas we were above the clouds. So a bit like that experience that people have when they're on long haul flights and you're above the clouds and you're just bathed in sunshine in the aeroplane above the clouds. That's what it was like for us. And gotcha. so for me and, and Nuri, and you're looking at just the very highest mountains in the world piercing through this sea of clouds so they're looking like little you know volcanic islands um uh with 
um, snow streaming um, off the top of the island, so looking like, um, you know, steaming volcanoes in in a, a, a sea of cloud. It's just beautiful, so breathtaking. I absolutely loved it, and um, I could get to a point where my uh, breathing was calm enough to be able to take off my oxygen mask. So, um, obviously, Agnew and I took some photos, very you know rudimentary camera that I had at the time, and I had a little backup disposable camera in case the battery on my camera had uh, um, you know collapsed in the, in the extreme temperatures. So it was minus thirty two up there, I think. Um, so it's pretty damn cold. Um, uh, and yeah, it was lovely. And then uh, my Sherpa had to drag me away. And <laughs> he was saying, come on, Diddy, we've got to get down now. <laughs> We've've been up here for three quarters of an hour. And uh, some other people from our team were starting to come up at that point. So yeah. uh, I mean, this sounds a bit show-offy, but it's just a fact that we all left at the same time at 9:30 at night, I think it was. But I was on the summit a couple of hours before any other members of my team, and it was not because I was going particularly fast, but it was totally, and what I would almost like to, you know, leave you on really in terms of an image, it's totally the story of the hare and the tortoise. And I often talk to school groups and uh, about climbing Everest and particularly trying to encourage young girls to, um, uh, and I say it absolutely pays to be the tortoise and not the hare. So, There'd been quite a few doubts about me at the beginning because I seemed quite slow, but I would say that I was just being steady. And I would say to people, it's not a race because it isn't a race. You know, it's not a competition. Don't buy into the competitive ego elements that are all around you um, at base camp and some of the sort of, you know, alpha male um, qualities that can be around and can egg you into a performance that doesn't feel comfortable for you because then if you become the hare, you will just um, deplete your resources and collapse. And and that's what was happening on the summit day. Uh, literally, people would go up fast, but then they would have to stop and rest for 20 minutes, half an hour, yeah. uh, whereas we just went steadily, steadily, steadily. And, yeah. and that's so important. We barely r- rested you know, uh, because we were going at a calm pace. So we would just pass the people who were going faster. So yeah. so it was a very satisfying climb in terms of we felt we not only did it well and comfortably and safely, but we did it with style. <laughs> and, and we were very, very blessed with fantastic conditions on the top. Your description of the, the journey up, both on, on the, um, you know, the first ascent and mm. this one in particular, and and what you were saying about the bit where you got there at dawn and you were looking mm. around, you could see the the clouds below you, you mm. could see storms going on in places like Pakistan, and the feeling of elation I, I'm sure has come across mm. to listeners. So thank yeah. you ever so much for coming and, on the show. And just a very final thing I'd like to say that I did at the top as well very much think about my grandfather at the summit and uh, again, it might sound like a bit of a cliche, but it felt like I had completed a bit of unfinished family business. Yes. Um, so uh, that was really, really lovely to have yeah. that sort of closing of the circle in terms of the, you know, the Everest story in the Brocklebank family as well. That's a, lo- a lovely story, Serena. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. That was a pleasure.
have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I will be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. 